there. Welcome to Tomorrow's World Now. It's great to have you here. Uh, good to be back on the air again. And I have with me such a distinguished panel. I'm grateful to have. Uh, to my far left is Mr. Ken Frank. Uh, Ken Frank, who does uh, so much work with our Living University and is himself a, uh, a minister. Uh, please greet him. I'm sure you're applauding there at home. We can't, we can't hear you. Uh, between the two of us is Dr. Douglas Winnale, another good friend, also uh, teaches at Living University and is actually the uh, director of church administration for the Living <coughs> Church of God. And for our topic today, the Bible, he literally wrote the book, not actually the book, not the, not, not the Bible. He didn't write the Bible, uh, but he did write a booklet about the Bible. Uh, and, and then me, my name's Wallace Smith. Uh, I'm on the Tomorrow's World telecast. Uh, some of you have seen me from there. Thank you very much for the shout out there on the book. Uh, and let's actually jump right into it. Our topic, I, personally, I think is, is so important. We were actually I was just talking about that right before we started. Uh, can we trust the Bible? Uh, if you go back far enough, uh, even though I would not agree with all the doctrinal positions of all the founding fathers of the United States, the country that we're in, we know a lot of you out there, ooh, before I go on, a lot of you watching us are from a variety of different countries. Uh, by all means, all of you, if you have a question on this topic about the Bible, about the things that we're going to say, if you hear us say something that you think, hey, could you follow up on this? Or you have a question about the Bible that maybe we haven't addressed, please add that to the comments. Uh, we're streaming this on Facebook. We're streaming it on YouTube. Please just type that in there. We have a great crew in there. I almost never say their names, Dylan, Chris, and Ryan. Uh, I got it now. We have a great crew in there that's going to be watching for, and someone else. I'm sorry, I didn't see that person. Uh, they're going to be looking for your questions, and they're going to try to pass them on to us. And we were talking before the program started how old my eyes are getting. I'm going to try to keep an eye out uh, and see the ones that they pass on to us. So please, please uh, ask us your questions. You can look on the screen right now and see what today's topics are. Uh, so by all means, throw us a question. Feel free to put us on the spot. But what I was saying before I distracted myself, if you go back at least in our nation's history, I'm an American, and I look at the history of my nation, you go back to the founding fathers, and while I wouldn't agree with all of their doctrinal positions, and I think we can all say they wouldn't agree with each other's doctrinal positions, they did take the Bible seriously. They did believe that it was a book from God, and even if they didn't perfectly understand it, even if they got a lot of things wrong, they still treated it credibly. There was this sense that, that you need to respect this book. And as a result, a few Definitely there's some things that should have leaked out from the Bible into our culture, but some things did, and they form a foundation of so many things we experience in this country and many of your countries as well. But contrast that today. Is there anyone here who would raise their hands and say that this country really cares about the Bible anymore? No, not a lot. I think certain uh, people do. Certain but it, people? But, but diminishing. Diminishing, right. right. We're in a very different place than we used to be. How do you, before we get to the, the main questions, I just want to ask, how do you think we got here? How do you think we went from there uh, to where we are now? Any, any thoughts? You know, you look back a couple hundred years with the Renaissance and with the uh, discoveries in the 1850s with Darwin and some of these things, people began to criticize the Bible, but they've been criticizing it literally for centuries. But it became big time uh, about that time. As a result today, I think partly because of critics of the Bible and partly because of apathy within our nation. Mm. Mm. You know, they, they've seen studies today showing uh, that many people just don't read the Bible. Even people who go to church don't mm. read the Bible. Uh, Americans have been called a nation of biblical illiterates. Mm. Right. Biblical illiterates. You know, high school kids and even college kids, they think Joan of Arc 
was Noah's daughter or Noah's wife because Noah had an ark. Well, they have the same last name, of course, right? Uh, and they yeah. believe that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were a husband and wife. Uh, they just don't know what's in the Bible. Mm. And as a result, people can make claims about the Bible that it's a bunch of stories and legends, right. but nobody can counter that because they don't take time to look into the evidence. That's interesting. You, I think you sent me an article. I'm not sure who, I can't remember, but it was something about, there's a study that found that children who have a habit of reading the Bible get through college and more, more of them keep their faiths if they're into the Bible before they, before mm -hmm. they get to college. Yeah. Um, any thoughts, <laughs> Mr. Frank? Yeah, in the first couple centuries of our country, the Bible was used as a basis of the McGuffey readers to teach mm, children how right. to read. And some of those books are still available. Some homeschool parents uh, still buy them and use them. But then Noah Webster compiled the first American dictionary of any consequence and because of all the different American spellings versus British spellings. Mm -hmm. And when he gave illustrations of definitions of words, not only did he include English, famous pieces of English literature, but Bible verses. Right. And so 1828, and then revised again, the major one, Webster's Dictionary, 1913. The Unabridged Dictionary still had many, many Bible verses, and I still use that in preparing sermons. We mm. don't use those any longer. Right. They were removed by later editions. You know, William McGuffey was born in 1800, died in 1873, something like that. Okay. He was a Presbyterian minister, hmm. but he graduated from Washington and Jefferson College, where I went to school. Really? Did you know him? <laughs> <laughs> um, one, one of my sons would ask me the same question. <laughs> but he, his purpose was to give students, and these, these were readers for... Uh, uh, primers for first grade through sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And his purpose was to give young children a foundation. Mm -hmm. So he used biblical names, biblical stories, biblical events. But all those things were removed from McGuffey readers about 40 years later. Right. And the, with, well, you take away the foundation and people just are biblically illiterate then as a mm -hmm. result. They're not being taught this in school. You know, I taught college for a number of years. And uh, even teaching in state universities, you don't bring up the Bible. You, you don't tie it in. You're not supposed to do things like that. Right. And that's kind of the sense I, I have. And it makes our work as ministers trying to, trying to reach the world with a message. Uh, if you go back at least 20, 30 years, even if everyone disagreed about what the Bible says and, and you're there to try to communicate, here's what it actually says, here's the truth, at least there was a certain Bible literacy where people were sort mm -hmm. of familiar and you could say, I know you heard this, but this is what it means instead. Instead, you, it's like, why, Adam and Eve? No, is that my neighbor? I'm not really, you know, not really sure. But that said, let me use this to transition to our first topic for the day of the, uh, the four topics we've tried to outline. We try to organize ourselves at least a little bit, uh, uh, even though it tends to get a bit rambling and sometimes these topics overlap. But the first topic we have concerns the historical evidence for the Bible's accuracy. Historical evidence for the Bible's accuracy. And to kind of lead off, Maybe this will address some of the things that each of you have brought up. There's this uh, Bible museum, Museum of the Bible, that's opening up. Uh, hopefully, I think we might have a website we can kind of show for you that. Not necessarily uh, approving it. You know, we're not endorsing it. We, they certainly didn't pay us any money to endorse it. I know that. But it's a, a museum that's apparently devoted to try to teach some of the historicity of the Bible, the, uh, the actual history of the book. Uh, its origins as they understand them, uh, how it may have been preserved and the rest. Uh, haven't you heard anything about that? It's opening, uh, I'll try to write down the date, November 17th, so it is coming up. Uh, any familiarity with it at all? 
as I understand it, um, the Hobby Lobby uh, owner, mm-hmm. I think his name is Mr. Green, mm-hmm. uh, put a lot of money into this museum to cover many of the topics we have on our list today. Oh, really? To give a foundation for the Bible, and it goes from exhibit to exhibit. But um, some of the early previewers criticize it for having much on the Bible, but not so much about Jesus. Mm. Well, I think the emphasis is to be on the Bible. Now, I don't know, but some of the headlines I saw, which came out just last week, uh, were critical in that fashion. Interesting. Because I I find increasingly in, in our culture, Almost before you can even talk much about Jesus, you almost have to talk a bit about the Bible. Not in all cases, but because the Bible is so discredited uh, that you almost have to try to understand. Well, I'm not an insane person. I'm not. I'm not off reading some sort of some sort of crazy book. I, I've seen a few things. Uh, I go to the National Religious Broadcasters uh, Convention every year for uh, uh, meeting with others who are in the industry. Uh, we try to do the Tomorrow's World program, which many of you are familiar with. And they've had sort of a preview sections trying to give some of the exhibits. It looks potentially fascinating because I would love to see the history of this. But, yeah, who really knows? Are we so far gone, perhaps, that any kinds of evidence may not make a difference? Which does bring us to our question, is there any evidence? People want to say that the Bible is just, oh, it's just, might as well be talking about King Arthur and, and Robin Hood or even worse, if some of those may exist. Uh, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. It's a bunch of made-up stories by a bunch of shepherds in the desert that didn't know what they were talking about. Okay, let me be honest. I'm not trying to pretend I don't believe that's not true, but can you guys help me out? Is there any evidence that it is? Can, Can you give me historical reasons why in the world I would treat the Bible credibly? You know, today people like to ridicule the Bible, and yet I've got a textbook here the Biblical Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. Now, people think, well, you're apologizing. No, you're giving evidence. You're providing sound evidence. And just notice how thick that is. It's almost as thick as my hand. Hmm. The evidence is there, and Ken's got another one over here. Why don't you just hold that up? you got two of them. (laughs) Yeah, there's a little bit of a story behind this. When I was a young pastor in the uh, mid-'70s, I wanted to give some sermons, and I came across a book in a Bible bookstore By the way, this is not our publication. This is not a Living Church of God publication, but Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. This man was a young skeptic who went to Europe to find evidence that the Bible was inaccurate and could not be trusted. He spent months and months researching Mm. in the biggest libraries of Europe, and when he came back, he believed that the Bible was the Word of God. Mm. Now, that has been uh, edited. Uh, Dr. Winnell has a later edition, and then... Just about a month ago, he and his son produced the brand new version, Hmm. and this is updated, fully revised with 40% new material, 40 years after the original edition. So we want our viewers to understand that there is material out there to cover the topics that we're going into today. Hmm. So it's it's a big topic. In fact, Dr. Winnell used the word apologetics. It comes from a Greek word used in our New Testament. Apologia, which means to give a defense. And Peter told us as Christians to be ready to give a defense to every man who asks us the hope that's in us with meekness and fear. Right. I I, I get asked that question sometimes when I talk about apologetics. I'm a real fan of of apologetics. In particular, does God exist, etc.? And people say, well, why are you apologizing? I said, well, no, no. It it comes from a Greek word that means exactly that, defending your faith, explaining it. But let me Again, I hate to use the word devil's advocate. When is the English language going to get a better word than devil's advocate? Mm-hmm. But let me kind of pray 
I mean, play advocate for the opposition. Okay, thick books, that's fantastic, you know. But, you know, I, I put together Origin of the Species and uh, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, and I'm going to get a pretty, pretty thick set of books. Give me some details. Uh, what, what do these guys say in here? Uh, what are some examples that you are aware of that actually demonstrate the credibility of the Bible? Some kind of a sense that it's historically credible. There is external evidence evidence that you find outside the Bible from history, from archaeology, even from geography. Mm. And then there's internal evidence that uh, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Frank will probably address, talking about what the Bible actually says about itself. A couple of examples of historical evidence. In the 1800s, they read about Hittites in the Bible, and they had not found any evidence of that. So they assumed this must be a manufactured idea until they found a library, an ancient library of over a thousand tablets. Uh, and there were all kinds of information about the Hittites. So all of a sudden they couldn't say it was not historical. Hmm. About 1994, there was an article came out in the Biblical Archaeological Review saying that David is no more historical than Abraham or Joshua or anybody. A year later, they published an article where they'd found a, an inscription on a stone in uh, Israel mm -hmm. with David on it. So all of a sudden he could not be a non-historical person. A mm. uh, number of examples like that. Uh, what you just said reminds <clears throat> me uh, of what we're often accused of, which uh, if, if you're an apologist and you do God of the gaps arguments, if you know what that is, they're generally unwise. But they'll say, ah, you know, you, you believers, you just believe this was a miracle until science discovers part of that, and you're running out of room for God uh, to do things because science is discovering more and more. To me, theirs is almost a, a disbelief of the gaps. Uh, look, we can't find evidence of this, 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 and this, and then they find evidence of this, and they find evidence of that, and they're kind of running out of room, uh, you know, of what to claim the Bible's inaccurate about. Well, this is what's exciting, I think, about this whole subject, is mm. the more you look for evidence, is there evidence that the Bible is true, the more things you find. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the idea that the Bible contains a lot of stories and inaccuracies, there was an article came out, actually on the website of a Lawrence Mikituik. He's a um, doctor of library science. The subject was 53 people in the Bible confirmed by archaeology. So what he did was take Bible names and then mm. look for evidence on inscriptions and so on. So you're finding people, some are important kings and some are just uh, regular guys. But why would you include these insignificant names in a book uh, if, it's, if you're just making up stories? Mm. There was an article in the... Uh, September-October issue of Biblical Archaeological Review. And here he lists 23 names in the New Testament hmm. of people that uh, are confirmed by evidence outside the Bible. So there's plenty of evidence that people want to look. Right. Uh, you look like you have something to say. Mr. I do. Uh, we're Christians, and many of our viewers uh, claim Christianity as well. I think one of the greatest historical evidences is the fact of Jesus himself. That the Hebrew Bible that we commonly call the Old Testament gives two to three hundred details mm -hmm. about the coming Messiah that were fulfilled in the lifetime of Jesus. Many of them all in one day during his death. And so all those prophecies could not have been fulfilled in any other human being who's ever lived except the life of Jesus. 
So that connects the Hebrew Bible, commonly the Old Testament, with our New Testament. I really appreciate what, what you guys are saying. One of, you talk about insignificant names as well. One of my favorite examples, and I asked the team if they'd, if they'd have a, a picture of this website. It's an old website from 2007 from the Telegraph out of the UK. And it gave this discovery of a small inscription tablet uh, that mentioned the name of this lesser figure, someone not supremely important, kind of a eunuch uh, in, in Babylon uh, under, uh, under the king. And it's a minor figure who's mentioned in the Bible, I think in Jeremiah 39, I could be wrong, but mentioned in the Bible. And yet here he is mentioned on this cuneiform tablet. To me, that's really significant. The insignificant figures kind of highlight things because, for instance, if I were going to make up a tale about America and some religion that was founded 100 years ago, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to pretend, I'm going to get George Washington right. You know, uh, I might even get Martha Washington right. I'll get some major names of history. You know who I'm not going to get right? The name of the guy that drove the, uh, the buggy that led George Washington to his inauguration. Uh, or the guy that helped him step out of, out of the buggy, you know. Onto the, I'm not going to get those guys right because history very often doesn't really record those individuals. And here you have a minor figure. People want to say some of the, all these historical accounts, they were just made up later. But now later, those names would have disappeared from history. This is not the kind of name you normally find. Uh, but before we go on to the next part of the topic, and as we transition to the next one, I think this is important. Before we talk about a different kind of, I'm sorry, right here. Before we talk about a different kind of evidence, I want to ask you, people say there's not evidence. Well, that's nice, but I need more evidence. Before we go on, I'd like to ask some of you, how much evidence would it take? How much evidence would it take to convince you or someone you know that the Bible's, a, at the very least, a book worth your attention. Because sometimes people keep asking for more and more evidence because, frankly, it's a conclusion they don't want to reach. And it's always easy to ask for more evidence. And they end up asking for more evidence about the Bible uh, than they would about anything else because, frankly, they're just simply avoiding it. Historical evidence, it seems like there's plenty of confirmation. Now, then people start talking about internal evidence with the Bible. And I hear that from uh, different, even different religious groups try to defend the Bible with what they call internal evidence or internal witness and elements like that. And do we have internal evidence for the Bible? I think this relates to the question of how the Bible was preserved for us. I think that's actually next on our, on our list of topics. I don't want to get it wrong. They'll probably see it on the screen before. Oh, yeah. How has the Bible been preserved? We know the Bible. It's right here. It's come to us through history. But how did it come to us through history? Uh, is that a trustworthy process? Uh, you guys have each done a lot of reading on this and a lot of research on this. How, how do we get the Bible? I know I can read. Let me read the official Catholic position, if you don't mind, if you all were curious. I say the official Catholic position. I get it out of the Catholic Encyclopedia. And it mentions this. Uh, this is the topic is, uh, well, I don't actually have the topic. The canon, canon of the New Testament. Canon of the New Testament is the topic. The idea of a complete and clear-cut canon of the New Testament existing from the beginning, that is, from apostolic times, that's the times of the apostles and Jesus Christ, has no foundation in history. The canon of the New Testament, like that of the old, is the result of a development of a process at once stimulated by disputes with doubters. It goes on and on and essentially says, uh, and didn't reach its final term until the dogmatic definition of the Tridentine Council, essentially centuries after uh, the apostles would have lived. Uh, is that anywhere close to accurate or is that just off the mark? Uh, can, can you help us out? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Christian history here. And we're referring to councils 
that debated for up to three, round, round 367 before the 27 books of our New Testament were decided upon, which ones belonged in the canon. Mm -hmm. And these councils made a decision. But the thing is, uh, what goes into the Bible does not depend on a council. <laughs> God inspired these books, and he determined which books were to go into it. And it makes logical sense that he would have used believers to preserve, to write and preserve these books. So our New Testament explains that God inspired it through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. Hmm. So God spoke, and like he, he spoke in Genesis, and then he said, Moses, write these words down. Hmm. Write them into a book, and then put the book in the ark near the Ark of the Covenant so it was preserved by the priesthood. Right. And we find the same thing, God speaking to Jeremiah. And that goes right through biblical history that God moved upon them and with inspiration upon certain authors and those who, in the church who preserved them. You know, these statements, the one that you just read, these are, these are claims that people make. Right. Uh, you can't take it as a given. Uh, it's someone's historical claim, but... They're claiming right, that right. The, the canon developed, and the canon is really the recognized inspired books. Mm -hmm. They mentioned both the Old Testament and New Testament are supposedly the result of a development. You know, Josephus mentions, he wrote in the first century, that the Old Testament canon was basically pulled together uh, by um, Ezra about 420 B.C. So they, they had the Old Testament. It was not a developmental thing. It was put together uh, at a particular time. Uh, just as an aside, I went to a, an exhibit at Cambridge University in England uh, a number of years ago yeah. on church history. And it had the church history of Christianity. The Christian church began in England about 600 whenever some monks came over from Rome. That's simply not true. Hmm. There is historical evidence saying that some of the apostles were in Britain very shortly after the crucifixion. This was not mentioned in the exhibit at all. So people going through this exhibit at Cambridge University uh, would assume that, well, Christianity came to England in the 600s. This is about 570 years too late. Uh, they're just ignoring evidence that is there. Right. Well, it's difficult. You know, history on one hand is sort of like a science, on the other hand it's not. Even science suffers at the hands of its own interpreters, but all the more history. There's a certain subjective element, and if, if your discovery just doesn't seem to fit what uh, the people that tend to run the show most, who tend to get most of the speaking lectures, etc., well, they're not necessarily going to present that evidence. They're going to present the evidence that fits what they have found. Uh, and there are elements to history that uh, people often overlook, not because they're, they're not credible, but because it doesn't fit the sort of pattern of things they've already put together. Historians make the comment that history is written by the victors. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's a really good point because the Bible talks about his, uh, Jesus Christ says his, his flock is a small flock. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's never really in charge of the world. It's never really in charge of governments. In a sense, throughout history, uh, the church has not been the victors. Uh, let's just say the, the group working with Rome, uh, you know, in those centuries, you know, putting that aside, you know, generally they weren't. And so you almost have to go through and look at the history of the losers. You have to go through and look at the history of the persecuted, those who haven't had uh, the lecterns and haven't had the megaphone uh, to proclaim this is, this is history, uh, to kind of get a, a sense of that.
Now, uh, you had mentioned a word earlier that I wanted to key off of, which is internal evidence concerning yeah. the uh, trustworthiness of the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, uh, let me comment. Mr. Frank gave a fantastic Bible study uh, on Jude last night. Mm -hmm. Really, really very much appreciated that. And, and most of y'all missed it. It's too bad. It was really good. <laughs> but uh, talking about internal evidence, perhaps concerning its compilation and concerning its... its, its uh, evidence of its trustworthiness, uh, what could you share with us? Again, as Christians, we turn to what Jesus himself said. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Mm -hmm. So we have Jesus' own statement that his words would be preserved. Then we have in the book of Luke 24, Jesus talks about the Hebrew Bible in its tripartite division, the mm -hmm. law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus refers to Moses, the law of Moses. He refers to the Old Testament stories in the parables and in the teaching that he gave to his people. So he, he recognized the great characters of the Old Testament like David and Moses mm -hmm. and others. So he was confirming the Old Testament himself. And then to Christians, that is very important. Now, after his death, he logically gave that commission to those who succeeded him, who were the apostles. So Peter, in his second epistle, said he wrote or was speaking or writing this epistle to ensure that his followers would have something preserved once he was gone, once he was dead. And then he says in 2 Peter 1 that we have the more sure word of prophecy. Hmm. And Mr. John O'Gwen, uh, who was uh, the late John O'Gwen, one of our ministers, wrote an article in which he explained that when Peter wrote that, he was talking about he, about himself, and John, John the Apostle. The men who were used to canonize, to put together our New Testament books and settle that before the end of the first century. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Right. And there are other passages we could mm -hmm. go to, but that's kind of a just a foretaste of what is available for internal evidence. Right, and, and there really is a, a great deal. <clears throat> I, uh, I'll refer to that article. I actually did print a copy off of it for myself titled, uh, How Did We Get the Bible? Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't seen it, you ought to see it. I, I can't stick it through the camera there, but you can go to our website at tomorrowsworld.org, and you can go up to the top. Look at the screen. It's right there. You can go up in the search box. You can see it on the screen there on the top right. And just type in, How Do We Get the Bible? should take you right to that, that January, February 2002 issue uh, by evangelist John H. Gwynn. Uh, and he really... That article would be a great starting point because it really brings a lot of details together. Mm -hmm. How did the Bible come together? You actually read the Bible writers actually talk about putting the Bible together if you actually take the time to look at the words. And, you know, when we talk about internal evidence, you know, some people can say it's, uh, it's sort of cyclical that, well, you trust the Bible because the Bible says, trust me, and that's it. But that's part of the theme of what we're talking about here is that's not the case. It's not just that I find a book that says, trust me, oh, I'm going to trust it. It has reasons uh, to be valid. Uh, we've given historical. There's historical evidence why this book truly does come from the times it talks about and has been preserved. There's internal evidence that it wasn't uh, created over some political machinery over centuries, but actually the people that knew Jesus Christ worked to, to put this book together. I appreciate in particular, Mr. Frank, you talking about uh, Jesus Christ's own words about the Bible, because for myself, 
one of my evidence of the Bible is the fact that you can actually give a good historical sense that this man called Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Uh, there's an empty tomb that has to be explained. There's a historical account, even if you're just looking at it as history, where they have, where women are the first to find the Bible and women weren't credible then, why would they record that unless it was actually something that happened? A body's never been produced. You look at the people back in the day trying to explain uh, to Christians, no, you shouldn't keep this faith. They couldn't produce a body. They couldn't say that, that it didn't disappear. And you can prove for yourself that Jesus Christ, if he was this God that he was talking about, really did raise him from the dead. And the fact is, he considered that book serious. He said, no, the God that is going to raise me from the dead is the same God that inspired this Old Testament and the teachings that I'm giving you right now. Um, you know, this issue of how do we know we have the right books in the Bible? How do we know mm, the right. Bible's been preserved? This is a big issue by critics. Mm -hmm. And it sounds logical. Well, people write down things by hand and they make mistakes and so on. And yet when you look into the evidence that is there, there is no book on the face of the earth that has been preserved like the Bible has been preserved. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul makes a statement in Romans 3 that it's, it was the Jews that were given the job of preserving the Bible. Mm -hmm. And when you look at how they preserved it from about 500 B.C. until about 1,000 A.D., they, they counted the number of words in the book. They counted the number of letters. They counted the middle word because they were given a commission in Deuteronomy 4, don't add and don't take away. And the Jews have taken that very seriously. Mm -hmm. so there's nothing uh, that compares to how the Bible has been preserved. And these ideas that the books we have today were forged and you know, we don't know who the author was, this is baloney. Uh, this is propaganda <laughs> by an individual who's been called the apostle of disbelief or the evangelist of disbelief, uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who's at University of North Carolina. Uh, he grew up as a, as a fundamentalist. He got, well, got a graduate degree, lost his faith, basically claims to be an, an agnostic. But he, he's throwing stuff out that sound very interesting, and yet there's a book entitled Truth Matters, written by three scholars that are literally counter everything that he says. Hmm. And one of the motivating factors by one of the guys that wrote the book was his daughter was in Ehrman's class. Oh, really? And uh, he's just writing a book partly for his daughter to show that he is only showing part of the picture. Hmm. He only puts out what he wants to talk about. Uh, I came across a quote recently where it says there's no evidence that the, in the early centuries of the church that the books circulated without the name of the person that wrote it. Hmm. So uh, this idea that we don't know who wrote the Bible, he talks about lost Christianities. These were not lost Christianity. These were heresies that were never accepted. So people don't need to be afraid to look into some of the books that we've got here that the Bible can be proven to be inspired. It's proven to be preserved very accurately. Uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of. The tragedy no. is people don't read and they don't look into these things. Right. They're, they're willing to accept whatever they hear. You know, uh, the book, uh, the uh, Da Vinci Code. Mm. One of the authors, one of the characters claims, well, honey, the, the, the book, the Bible was only written by men. Mm -hmm. I had a professor in medical school tell me the same thing. I was telling him I got to start keeping the Sabbath because it's in the Bible. He said, son, the Bible was only written by men. Uh, and he was a very intelligent person. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that he had ever looked into proving the right. Bible. Well, some, some of what you're saying actually might relate to this uh, comment that's been passed on to me from our awesome crew in the room over there from YouTube. 
Uh, someone writes, to say that the New Testament canon was inspired by God is taking a lot on faith uh, and isn't hard evidence. And when he's, or he or she, I don't know who it is, happens to say faith, I'm assuming they mean sort of blind faith, as in you're just sort of, uh, you know, there's not really any evidence that this is the case. You're just taking a lot on faith. Uh, I know it sparks in me some thoughts. Uh, what, what would be your comments to someone who says that? Oh, to say the New Testament canon was inspired by God, really, that's, uh, that's taking a lot on faith. Josh McDowell explains that the purpose for apologetics is to give a basis for faith. Okay. There's no doubt that as Christians we do trust the Bible as the inspired word of God. What we're presenting here are internal and <clears throat> excuse me, external evidences to support, to give us a basis for having that faith in Jesus Christ and the early church. So that, that, that's an important distinction. But when, when we deal with evidence, one of the biggest problems is a heart problem. It's mm -hmm. not the mind. We can give you lots of material to satisfy the mind, but unless the heart is changed and brought <clears throat> within accord with God, the right. person will just outright dismiss it. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, any thoughts, Dr. Wendell? Yeah, the Bible also makes some very clear statements. Jesus just didn't say, just believe, just trust me, you know, give me your heart. Mm -hmm. Apostle Paul makes a statement in 1 Thessalonians 5:21, and I'd never read that scripture or heard that scripture talked about when I was growing up in a Protestant church. He says, prove all things, examine all things, and hold on to those things that are right and true. He didn't right. just say believe. He didn't just say, you know, trust in something. He said, prove right. it, nail it down. And when you take the time to prove these things, I did this in graduate school and I was learning to do, you know, starting to study the Bible seriously. Hmm. I was surprised at how much you could find that actually proved that the Bible was the inspired word of God. You know, you can't predict the future. Human beings can't do that, but the Bible does. And right. that'll lead to another topic. Right. <laughs> but the evidence is there, as Mr. Franks mentioned. The problem is not up here, it's down here. Hmm. If God exists, and if the Bible is true, right. then the Bible tells us that certain things are wrong and other things are right. Mm -hmm. And nobody likes to be wrong. And nobody wants to give up uh, drinking, sex, whatever else. Uh, if they're doing something they realize is wrong, it bothers them. But if they know that there's, if, they, if somebody tells them there's no God, right. then they can be relieved. Right. Because that means there's no judgment. Right. Uh, they're the words that demand something of you, which makes them unappealing uh, to a lot of people. You know, part of what I understand concerning the New Testament, because the, the, the commenter specifically focused on the New Testament, is it's sort of like finding the church. Jesus Christ promised us that uh, the church would not succumb to the grave. It would always exist on the earth. And so then it behooves us to find it. Uh, right? It behooves us so, so we have to find it. There should be hallmarks of that church. Well, same thing in the New Testament. Mr. Frank, you mentioned earlier that Jesus Christ promised his words would not pass away. His teachings are out there somewhere. Uh, somewhere, if God, because I've, again, I've proven for myself that Jesus Christ is, is the Messiah, that indeed he rose from the dead, that the things he said should be trustworthy, should be trusted. Would he then be helpless and think, oh no, there's no way they're going to be able to find everything I wrote. What am I going to do? Uh, no, if there's going to be something, can I find it? And if you find the internal witness of the New Testament, it's remarkably consistent. To me, that's one of the internal evidences. All these authors, old and new, over thousands of years, can create such a consistent message. And now some will try to point at what they perceive as inconsistencies, 
And I would challenge them, you find another work that spans that many millennia uh, of that many authors that's as consistent as the Bible, and I might be willing to consider what you consider some inconsistencies. But it's funny, it's really clear when you look at, for instance, some of the apocryphal works, how they just don't belong. Uh, one is the Gospel of Peter. It's, it's not in the Bible, the Gospel of Peter. It doesn't read anything like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, which actually read like reports and have internal evidences of being good history. Oh, it's ridiculous. I think it's the Gospel of Peter. It has the stone being moved from the tomb and, and a giant cross coming out uh, and talking to people. And it has uh, supposedly Jesus Christ, and he's, just, he's got his heads in the clouds, his feet on the ground. He's tall like Godzilla. It's like, that does not read like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can trace evidence of these words back to the days of the apostles, and they show all the hallmarks of history. And one more thing I'll mention, and John Aguin used to say this, and I appreciate this so much. There's no way that this is just a book collected by men, say, in the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, because they wouldn't have put together so many books that disagree with so many of their teachings. Uh, it was that it was so well known by the body of people calling themselves Christians that you couldn't have excluded one of the books if you wanted to, and you couldn't have shoved in another book. Uh, if you wanted to, until many centuries had passed. So, uh, no, I think it's, uh, it's a matter like you talk about. There's a basis for the belief that these are indeed the books of the, of the New Testament. So, I appreciate the question. You know, when you read these apocryphal books, the Gnostic Gospels and so on, and as some people say, they're lost Gospels, hmm. when you read them, they are totally different. You know, one of the reasons they are promoted by some organizations is that they contain uh, ideas that they want to believe. Uh, Gospel of Mary basically talks about uh, Mary was really one of the movers and shakers in the early church. Uh, she was the romantic companion of Jesus Christ and that bore one of his sons. Hmm. You know, so these ideas were basically heretical ideas. They were never accepted by the early church. Right. But somehow scholars today, and this is part of the academic problem, the scholars, even theologians, have to publish something. And they've got to come up with new ideas. Hmm. So you know, Harvard Theological Seminary and some of these others, they're, they're trying to publish new ideas, right. new insights. But these things are crazy. They're no one gets attention for republishing an old idea. Right. Uh, right. 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 I recently heard some lectures by a scholar about these Gnostic Gospels. Mm -hmm. And as he re recounted the stories, they're fanciful. I mean, they're full of superstition. <laughs> and these come out of the second century, especially the Gnostic Gospels. This is after the New Testament had already been determined by God and preserved within his church. We believe in the living church of God, and we teach in living university. But even in, when we look at Christianity, the world's uh, version, as we might call it, uh, it was the councils that determined these books were not part of the Bible. For the first several hundred years, the apocryphal books were not included right. until... 1500s when a major denomination accepted it and then in the Protestant Reformation they were again rejected mm -hmm. so they've been very controversial books all along and the Jews of course did not accept the Apocrypha as part of their canon right I'd highly recommend uh, not only everyone get our <laughs> can someone show that beautiful booklet look at that beautiful booklet the Bible fact or fiction I'd highly recommend getting that booklet good very nice Vanna White thank you thank you very much uh, and are the the article how do we get the Bible by Mr. John Aguin on our website and allow me to, to transition then talking about evidence for the Bible there's a whole category of evidence that we haven't touched and and the clock is ticking uh, for us prophecy 
Um, we should have the topic come up on the screen for everyone. How has, sorry, how is Bible prophecy unique? Uh, what role does it play in all of this? Uh, does it play any kind of role in terms of uh, confirming the Bible? Or are we really talking about guys like Nostradamus, et cetera, just kind of throwing out vague, creepy stuff, 2012, bunch of just goofy stuff. What makes Bible prophecy different, and what role does it play in this particular discussion? It plays a big role. That Bible prophecy, there's no book on the face of the earth that contains the specific prophecies like the Bible does. The Bible contains about 1,800 or so very specific prophecies, specific names, specific events. The you know, other religious books simply don't have it. The Quran contains no real prophecies. As Mr. Frank mentioned, there are about two to 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ, what he would wear, what would happen to him. There are no prophecies like that about Muhammad. There's no prophecies uh, in your uh, writings of uh, other religions, but the Bible is totally unique, totally unique in that sense. Mm. Yeah, during your comments and Mr. Frank's about uh, the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, I've heard people say, well, what Jesus Christ probably did was try to satisfy all of these prophecies. And so clearly he saw the list and said, hey, I better go shopping, you know, I better go buy this, I better do that. And all I want to say to any viewers out there that, that, that make it such a claim, you go for it. You know, if you can do the same thing, if you can actually arrange your entire life to satisfy all those prophecies, man, send me a postcard in the process because that, that's a lot of work. I, I'd like to see that actually happen. It's often people just want an excuse. Uh, but uh, Mr. Frank, any thoughts on the yeah, topic? Yeah, the book of Isaiah in uh, the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah was inspired to write speaking for God, that God is God alone, and he declares the end from the beginning. Mm. In other words, he knows the end of human history and what's going to happen, and he pro proclaimed the demise of great empires like Babylon, again in the mm. book of Isaiah, about its, its fall in Isaiah 13 and 14. And then in the book of Ezekiel, about the capture of the great Phoenician city of Tyre, mm -hmm. Alexander the Great, and describing how they would work their way out because there were two parts of the city, a mainland and an island, and they would scrape off the mainland to make a causeway out to the island. And he said even after that, fishermen would cast their nets right. over that water. And that's true even to this day. How do we explain these prophecies apart from divine inspiration? Right. right. Um, there's a, uh, I, I talked to someone in Jamaica once. I was uh, uh, there for our Feast of Tabernacles, which many of us just observed actually just a, a few weeks ago. And I was in Jamaica talking to someone about how they came to, to, to really believe these things we're talking about. And one of the things that concerned them was if the Bible's full of prophecy, then surely it's going to talk about the United States uh, and the UK and some of the major nations of the world today. And if it's not, if, if it doesn't talk about those things, then how can, I, how can I trust the Bible? How can I actually believe if it's prophesying about the future and it's not talking about the major players today? And it wasn't until he actually encountered the things that we explain about prophecy that he realized the Bible does talk about those things, and it was absolutely confirming for him. Uh, and I, I'd like to recommend to any of our viewers who haven't seen this booklet, uh, The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. We're showing it our, our webpage to you right now. Uh, believe it or not, the United States and Great Britain are in the Bible. A lot of folks would disagree with that, honestly. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you they're wrong. 
But let me challenge you to look it up. Uh, it's free. We don't charge for anything. It's all, it's all free, believe it or not. Uh, check it out. Put us to the test. But you see these things. It is confirming. It's amazing to see the Bible predict something in the future and then actually take a look uh, at what's around you and actually see that it's, that it's right there. You know, I wouldn't make any apologies. Those are people that criticize that idea are simply wrong. But um, one of the things people don't understand today is many of the prophecies are dual. And scholars understand this. There was a fulfillment in the ancient world, but there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies in the future. Right. Many of the prophecies involved the children of Israel or the house of Israel. Israel had 12 tribes. The Jews were only one. The Jews are not the only Israelites. They are Israelites, but they're not the only ones. The duality of prophecy talks about when a nation turns away from God, and especially God's chosen people, the Israelites, when they turn away from God, there are going to be consequences. Right. And what we're seeing today, the decline of America, the decline of Britain, uh, the morality problems we're having today, the rise of Europe, the rise of uh, China, these things are all understandable through Bible prophecy. But most people don't preach about Bible prophecy. Right. I remember hearing a, a Protestant minister basically say, I don't preach much about prophecy because I don't understand it. Especially the book of Revelation. <laughs> and they will stay away from it. <laughs> right. But uh, as our viewers and readers know, we produce a number of booklets on Revelation. What many don't realize is that a very large segment of Revelation is a reciting or citing again, rather, of Old Testament prophecies. And there's a major connection with another Old Testament book, and that's the book of Daniel. Right. <clears throat> and Daniel prophesied about four major Gentile kingdoms. That, that prophecy goes right into our own time in Revelation, and then adds, fills in the details based on Daniel's prophecy. So we encourage you to get our literature on that. Right. You, you mentioned our viewers. I uh, have a note here that we do have viewers from South Africa, uh, from England, uh, from Jamaica. I was talking about being in Jamaica <coughs> recently. Hello there in Jamaica. And, and from Texas. Uh, I'm from Texas. I've learned to speak regular English as well. So hopefully all of my Texas <laughs> friends can have been able to understand us. I appreciate you mentioned the book of Revelation because when I was first beginning to really explore the Bible and come to understand these things, I was fascinated by Revelation. I had my own theories trying to interpret it. Of course, I was 14 or so, so they weren't the best. And I asked my grandmother, and nothing against my grandmother. I love her very much. I miss her. I look forward to seeing her in, uh, you know, in the future when many people will come up. But I said, hey, uh, Nina, uh, you know, what do you think about this and this, about Revelation? And that's what she said to me was, you know, Wally, we, we just don't look at that book. You know, we just don't read that. But it's, it's part of the Bible. It's, 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 <clears throat> it's Revelation. You know, God, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ has given it to us. And seeing these prophecies come true, I know as a young man, it, it made an incredible difference for me, but you do have to understand them. You know, you do have to have, you know, God's help in that way, understanding them, but when you do, you know, it really is everywhere. Uh, as we're starting to, to close things down, I want to ask both of you a personal question. I warned you ahead of time that I would do that, is when it comes to taking the Bible seriously, and when, when perhaps it is that you decided that this book is, that I really do need to give it my attention, or when your relationship to the Bible changed, can you explain that? Where was that? When was that moment for you, and, and, and what was it about that? I could give two reasons. I was in graduate school, and I learned about the Church of God and also began studying the Bible, learning about the identity of the Israelite nations. That was big for you. It was big because it began to explain why the world is the way it is and where things are going. That was really big. 
I was also a graduate school and a graduate student at a medical school at that time. I was into medical history, history of medicine. And I was reading in one of the books that uh, King Asa, and this is described in Second Chronicles chapter 16, that um, um, <clears throat> he was diseased in his feet, and it said he sought to the physicians. Mm -hmm. And the point was, you know, even the ancient Israelites used physicians a lot. But when you actually read the verse, Second, Second Chronicles 16, verse 12, it said, He sought to the physicians instead of the Lord, and he died. Mm -hmm. Which the medical historian was not quoting the verse properly. Mm. So when you read the verse, you begin to realize, no, wait a minute, what's going on here? And the more you study the history of medicine, especially with the Israelites, the Bible talks a lot about principles and prevention. It does not contain an extensive list of, of treatments and cures. You find that in almost all the other ancient civilizations, but it's absent in the Bible, which tells you the Bible is a very different book. Mm -hmm. But when you start putting these things together, the fellow I referred to earlier that confirmed about 53 people in, in uh, archaeology, the same thing. He saw a seal, and it was a biblical name, and he said, why don't people talk about this? Right. It really confirms the Bible. And he started looking, and he found all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So when you actually look into the information about the Bible, uh, it's hard to ignore unless you want to ignore it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Mr. Frank. For, for me, I was raised a Baptist in New Jersey. And I went through kind of a uh, catechism class where we were given a number of courses to prepare us for baptism around the age of 12. And they gave me a Revised Standard Version Bible uh, after that uh, ceremony. And I still have that Bible. But I didn't read it thereafter, did not really understand what was in it until I was 17 years old. And I, too, I had a fascination with the radio at the time, listening to far distant stations. And I heard a radio program uh, hosted by Herbert W. Armstrong. And he offered some literature, which I wrote for, including the Plain Truth magazine. And I can remember taking the booklets, the first set of booklets that he sent me about the United States and Britain and prophecy. He went mm. down to the Jersey Shore, which we were living close to, and on the beach started reading this literature. Then I found out about a correspondence course. Mm. And when I started going through the correspondence course, which was 58 lessons, Bible lessons, it opened the Bible to me like I had never known it before. Wow. So I, Mr. Armstrong was the predecessor of our work today. So that's where it began for me. Well, interesting. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, before I transition then to our last point that we have in the program today, we actually have a question come in on Facebook that if I can ask, concentrated answer. You guys could just kind of get it in there. The question was that some people teach that prophecies from, from say, Catholic mystics and uh, some of these other religions should be taken seriously in conjunction with actual Bible prophecies, that maybe they should be somehow put together. Uh, and the question is, it says specifically, what do you three gentlemen think? So what do you think, Dr. Winnell? Number one, in Isaiah 8.20, it says, if they speak not according to this word, there's no light in them. Mm, right. So if their prophecies are contrary to anything we find in the Bible, uh, I wouldn't even pay attention. Right. You know, what people need to realize, there is a source uh, of darkness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is a spiritual source that does provide information that's intriguing and it's exciting, but it's going to lead people off in the wrong direction. Right. All right, Mr. Frank. I was going to say the same thing, that there's another spirit out there that right. Christians are warned against, 
And let's see if they come to pass. Uh, that's the most important thing because the Bible said that the false prophets' prophecies do not come to pass. But the, to the law and to the testimony, that's where we look. And right. that's the basis of the Bi what we call the, the Bible today. Right. Uh, I'd love to go into more detail with some particular scriptures, but my thought is right in line, of course, go figure, right in line with what you guys are saying. How many times does the Bible have to warn us against mixing the profane with the, with the righteous? Uh, and I've seen people try to game it somehow, where they, they take the, the, say, the Catholic prophecies, private prophecies, or the prophecies of some other sort of uh, heathen religion, and say, well, we know that these could have been demon-inspired, and if the devil inspired them, he's a liar and trying to distract people from the truth. So let's try to reverse engineer what the truth might be that these <laughs> demons know that they were trying. When does the Bible give us permission to try to figure out what demons know? I can't think of a single time. The only time in the Bible when there's a, a woman who is inspired by some kind of demonic spirit to give prophecies in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul said one thing to her, essentially, shut up. Uh, he did, and the Spirit left her. That's our obligation, is not to dive into those things. Mm -hmm. The Bible, beginning to end, says do not, Baal and God don't, don't go to the same table. Right. So absolutely uh, abominable, and anyone who does that absolutely should be avoided. So we have a few spare moments. Transition to our last point. Let's say people take, for the fourth comment today, the fourth topic, so let's say people take you guys seriously. Somehow you've convinced people in our audience. Good job, Dr. Winnell. Good job there, Mr. Frank. What kind of answers are they going to see to their questions? You know, the topic here is real answers to life's big questions. What kind of differences are they going to see if they explore the things we're talking about and begin to consider taking the Bible seriously? One of the things they're going to see is that the Bible explains the purpose of human life. Hmm. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading on this lately. And I would challenge anybody that's listening to compare what we write in our booklet on uh, <clears throat> why were you born or uh, what do we call it? <laughs> Your ultimate destiny? Yeah. Your ultimate destiny. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a very philosophical topic. But compare what we write, compare what the Bible says with what uh, skeptics say, with mm. what atheists say. You know, Rick came across one the other day where the guy was saying that we are nothing but a speck of stardust on a rock that's floating through space. How glorious. And that when you die, you're dead. That's all there is. Compare that with what the Bible talks about. We are made in the image of God to become the sons and daughters of God, to become part of God's family, to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth for a thousand years mm -hmm. in the kingdom of God. Compare that. And you can make the choice. You can be a, a speck of stardust on a rock, or you can be a son of God or a daughter of God, but compare those things. People that have a sense of purpose tend to be healthier. They live better lives. They've got a focus. They've got a reason for getting up in the morning. Uh, people that are just aimlessly floating through life have a lot of problems with drugs and sex and other things. Uh, Bible provides big answers. Right. It provides big answers. All right. Uh, God Frank. wrote the Bible for the average person to read and understand it. They do not need to be scholars to read mm. and study the Bible. And when God, when they have a willing mind and God opens their mind to understand his plan, the greatest evidence for those people will be the changes that they see occur in their lives because right. of what that Bible tells them to do. And then they learn that they have a living relationship with Jesus Christ right. and that Christ will live in them and guide them. And then they will walk by the words of that book. And it's something that they will want to study day by day. 
I appreciate those comments. I know uh, certainly, and I've mentioned to my kids and to my to my wife, to my to my family, that I see in 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 what we have for all of our ups and downs and difficulties. Uh, you know, all the evidence I kind of need that something's right. You know, there, that whoever wrote this book, whoever inspired this book, knew something about life uh, that, that other people just don't know. It speaks to in a way like no other book does. It does, like no other book. Yeah. So. so I hope that you will uh, take it seriously. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, that is all the time we have, maybe even a little more than the time we have. Uh, my thanks again to the uh, incredibly talented folks in the uh, room right over there, the handsome fellows I have here. Uh, come check us out again next Thursday, same time, same place. Thank you. <laughs>